Mino Lion Media presents Corner Table Talk. Welcome to Corner Table Talk. I'm your host, Brad Johnson. Here we explore subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. As always, we welcome your comments and questions. You can reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. So I had a few sports stars that I idolized growing up. My very first, like many of us, was Muhammad Ali. When Joe Frazier's left hook knocked him down in 1971, I actually cried. I love Bob Hayes on the Dallas Cowboys, whose world-class speed won a gold medal in the 100-yard dash at the 1964 Tokyo Olympics and led to the play known as the bomb when he'd race downfield, outrunning any defender, and once caught a record-setting 83-yard pass from quarterback Don Meredith for a touchdown. I love the Mets of 1969, Ed Cranepool, Cleon Jones, Ron Swoboda, and company, I can still name all nine starters. The Harlem Globetrotters snuck in there too when my mom and dad took me to my first live basketball game and Metal Lark Lemon found me on my aisle seat about 20 rows from the floor and took my box of popcorn down onto the court. At the time, it was the biggest thrill of my life. Then I discovered the New York Knicks on a local New York City metropolitan station known as Channel 9 and began a love affair with basketball that aching knees these days remind me of endless days on asphalt and sneakers that today only pass as stylish throwback walking shoes. I was 12 and loved everything about the Knicks, the orange and blue uniforms, the teamwork, the way Dick Barnett cocked his leg back when shooting a left-handed free throw. I ran imaginary plays countless times, shooting alone in the park. To Busher to Bradley, Bradley to Barnett, Barnett to Frazier. It's good. <laughs> that team won the championship in 1970 against the Lakers in a game seven at Madison Square Garden. No Nick fan will forget Willis Reed hitting his first two shots, dragging his injured right leg through a heroic performance against none other than Wilt Chamberlain. Following the game in the winner's locker room, a moved Howard Cosell told Reed on national television, quote, you exemplify the very best the human spirit can offer, end quote. While Willis lifted the team and the crowd's spirit at the garden, it was the incredible game turned in by my guest today, who scored 36 points, added 19 assists. As hard as it may be to believe, they did not keep track of steals, but he had a bunch in that game and a performance that led to the first of two championships in 1970 and 1973. I'm speaking of two-time NBA champion, seven-time NBA All-Star Game MVP, seven-time All-Defensive Team. His number 10 jersey is retired in Madison Square Garden. He is a member of the NBA's 50th anniversary all-time team, also NIT champion and NIT MVP, currently color commentator for telecasts of Nick Games on MSG. He also co-owns, along with renowned restaurateur Michael Weinstein, the Manhattan Eatery, Clyde Frazier's Wine and Dine. I'm honored to have as my guest today, none other than the legend and the epitome of cool, Walt Clyde Frazier. Walt, thank you so much, man, for being here today. Yeah, my pleasure, Brad. Uh, it's been a long time man, since we talked, but a lot of profound memories. Uh, back in my youth when I was driving and driving, <laughs> wheeling and dealing. Driving and thriving. I also want to give a shout out to Patricia for, you know, coordinating this today. So thank you so much, Patricia. So, well, I kick things off with what I call short order questions. Just a, a few things I'll, I'll fire at you. Get your, uh, get your quick response. So what music are you listening to 
these days? I'm strictly really? Motown. Yeah, Soul Town. Uh, that's the station channel. I on a serious the Soul Town. Yeah, yeah, on serious. Lots of temptation, so smoky. Yeah, I like a little of the rap music, but once I hear it, I, I can only listen to it for a certain amount of time. But uh, yeah, I like the old songs. They give me motivation. Uh, live vicariously hearing certain songs, especially. Yeah, man, I'm that. with you on that. So besides Clyde's, what New York City restaurant do you frequent most often and why? You know, I moved to Harlem maybe 10 years ago. So uh, there's a a restaurant adjacent to my apartment called Jacobs. It's more like a Mm -hmm. smorgasbord. They have fast food in there, so I kind of eat from him. I do a lot of my own cooking, Brad. I have my George (laughs) Foreman grill. I fired up chicken, fish. I do a lot of fruits and vegetables, uh, protein shakes, mm-hmm. vitamins. So I still have a regimen as though I'm playing the game. And you look fantastic. Not- Unfortunately, the audience won't be able to see you. But uh, whatever you're eating and consuming, keep doing it, man, because you look you look great. So, Walt, tell me the best live musical performance that you've ever seen. Best live. Probably Stevie Wonder at the Garden. Yeah, I, I caught his act a few times and it was uh, very provocative. And, you know, I had an experience that night. I was just coming into my celebrity. I was waiting for the elevator trying to leave. And I got mobbed. People just started coming over. There's Clyde. There's Clyde. There's Clyde. And, you know, I didn't know what to do or expect. So I was saved <laughs> by the elevator, actually, in a nickel time. But that's when I, I found out how people in New York are not fans. Yeah. They're fanatics. You know, I used to, I, I went to church one time. I walk in, people start screaming. I was like, what is going on here? You know? So everywhere I went, it, it was this overwhelming reception of me and, People talking about my my basketball skills, and then once I started to buy the clothes. Oh man, no, it was on! It was on! It was not even a dream. I never dreamt that I would have this type of success. Uh, I'm the oldest of nine kids. My mother, all she ever wanted was a house with a big kitchen because <laughs> she liked to cook. So I can remember as a kid, you should pray every night, God, please let me be a football player, a basketball player. You know, I could buy my mom this house. So that was my motivation and and being Mm -hmm. being an athlete and trying to succeed. So once I did that in 1973, I didn't really have that many more goals. And I was just overwhelmed by the respect that people showed me wherever I go. Like even today, Brad, east side, west side, all over this town, the most... uh, popular city in the world. I can't go without someone recognizing me, calling me Mr. Frazier, buying me a drink, <laughs> buying me a meal, remembering the success that you alluded to about the two championships. And you, you touch so many people, Walt, you know, and, and I'm not surprised that that resonates. And, and I want to walk through a bunch of that uh, with you. So uh, and I'm really I'm just so honored that that you're here today. So complete this sentence for me. I love island life because because I love the fresh air, the sunshine, the water, it's a pristine environment. Uh, the people are laid back. So I like it when it rains, if the sun is shining. I'm a sailboat captain. I got into sailing once I was in the islands, got my captain's license. One of my hobbies is gardening. <laughs> I love horticulture, getting out in the garden every day in the evening. So there's so many things that uh, the island life has really opened up for me as, as a person that if I know if I remain in New York, 
I would probably still be Clyde hanging out all the time, uh, styling, profiling with the Rolls Royce. You know, my my only perception of trees when I was in right, New York was right. Central Park. So, uh, you know, I like the transition that I made from from the New York guy to the to the island. Yeah, man, that's a, that's a fantastic balance. Tell me, Cloud, your favorite childhood food memory. Childhood food was uh, fried chicken. Uh, my mom was an excellent cook. Pancakes. <laughs> it's funny when my mom used to cook, you know, she had two skillets going. There were so many kids. So so the pancakes would go on and, and the fried chicken. I tell people that's how I developed my quick hands. <laughs> you had to snatch that chicken before those eight brothers and sisters got that's to right. it. That's right. When the food came around, it helped to be able to <laughs> That's great. That's a good image. I can see that. All right. So this is going, this is going to challenge you. So what sneakers did you wear in your rookie season with the Knicks? My rookie season, I wore Converse. That was the only sneaker around, if you can believe it, back in the day. Converse. As a rookie, I used to wear, well, in college, I wore high tops. Now I come to the pros. You mentioned Dick Barnett. These guys were wearing low cuts. You know, styling, that's what they did. So I started to wear the low cuts, but I learned in college how to mm-hmm. tape my ankles. So that helped prevent it. To, if you turn your ankle, gives you some resistance against the spraining. So can you believe those shoes? There was no support. How we survived. But you never heard of plantar fasciitis. <laughs> no. <laughs> those days, we never had foot problems like the guys do today with all these fans. I, I agree, man. I mean, I, I've had that conversation with, with a few people, but, you know, what we could do, I watched some of the old tapes, you know, preparing for today. And while the game was certainly fast back then, uh, and playing in these kinds of, you know, this kind of footwear, it isn't, it wasn't the same game as it is now because you could only do so much in those sneakers, right? You could only stop so fast and turn so quickly. And I, and I wonder if a lot of the injuries today aren't related to the elevated footwear. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it is because the Converse were more right. like being barefooted. <laughs> no, they weren't elevated. Now they're styling and putting a lot of stress. Plus, Brad, the mm-hmm. size of these guys today. The average height of uh, of an NBA player is six eight, around two hundred twenty five pounds. You know, when I played at six four, I was a big yeah. dude. Yeah. That's right, I was a big guard. Now I'm a shrimp. <laughs> I'm a point guard. <laughs> yeah. Today's game, so that has a lot to do with the two. Mm-hmm. The size of these guys is stressed. Look at LeBron, the guy two sixty five, whatever he is, six eight. The speed that and the agility that he plays with. So it's almost inevitable that they're going to have severe. Yeah, a lot more torque going on there in those in those frames. So, Walt, tell me if this is possible. Your best sports memory, your personal best sports memory. Oh, unequivocally, Game Seven. Mm-hmm. You alluded Game Seven. Willis came out, made his first two shots. I had thirty six points, nineteen assists, seven rebounds, four steals. I sold hot dogs at <laughs> halftime. <laughs> you did it all. <laughs> so. That was my Mm -hmm. best game, Brad, because game seven is all on the line, baby. That's it. Yeah. There's nothing else. And that game has been voted the best seventh game in the history yeah, of the yeah. NBA. Well, let's uh, let's pause so, on that yeah. because I want to come back to that game specifically. It's been so documented and so covered. But I, I found an interesting quote from you that I want to allude to. But I'm going to come back to that uh, in a few minutes. So last one of these uh, short order questions, uh, Clyde, who past or present would you most like to host at an intimate dinner party? Oh, said an intimate dinner party. Probably a guy, Muhammad Ali. 
Ali Frazier. I, I idolized those guys like you did. Bill Russell, mm-hmm. Will Chamberlain. Mm-hmm. These were my idols coming up as well. Uh, Willis Reed. Uh, Willis Reed was my positive role mm-hmm. model on the Knicks. I learned his game, the way he played with tenacity, his teamwork, his leadership, his, uh, his sportsmanship. Uh, he's a man's man, so he had a tremendous impact on yeah, my career and my that'd life. Be a hell of a dinner table. All right, so let's let's jump in. First off, how are you? How you fam- How's your family? Everybody good? Yeah, thank God everybody's blessed. Uh, trying to persevere, survive during these tumultuous times, staying healthy. So I uh, haven't good. had any problems. I'm good very, to hear, man. So you alluded to this, but I wanted to dive a little bit more deeply here. Um, when you contrast life in St. Croix with New York City, your other home, given all of the tough news as of late, the pandemic, I mean, you name it. Does island life give you a sense of peace, a kind of escape balance that you're looking for? It does, because when you can relate to nature, you always have a, a respective of the past. And, and I think those that made it possible for me to sit in St. Croix and be a successful person, not really have to work if I don't want to. So it's a revelation and a, a testament to, to my life and my lifestyle and the people that also catapulted me to, to be the person that I Fantastic. am today. Well, you, you bought property on St. Croix quite some time ago. What attracted you to island life and, and why St. Croix in particular? Well, I've always been a health and fitness fanatic. Uh, you know, Clyde and going out looking good, trying to look your best. So I used to read a lot of books and they would tell you to try to find a healthy environment. You need water, fresh air, sunshine. You know, that's what you need. So obviously in New York, that wasn't here. I, I My favorite season is the fall. I love the fall when it's 69, 70, mm-hmm. you stay out. So but when I went to the islands, I, I was just mesmerized how the wind blows to get up in the morning, like five or six o'clock. It's yeah. so tranquil. And I still do that, Brad. I get up and I just listen to the wind, look at the sky, the difference in it. So it's uh, very motivating. And that's why I, whatever I, I, I thought I would accomplish mm-hmm. there, I have. So I played uh, when I was with the Knicks, I weighed 200 pounds. Now wow. I weigh 195. So I've been able to maintain my weight. When I'm in St. Croix, I rarely mm-hmm. eat a lot. You know, I'm out in the yard. I'm working with guys. I'm still building. So I have a rental properties there that I manage. So I have maybe 12 or 13 different houses. Some are one bedroom, some are two bedrooms, some have an ocean view, some have the garden view. And I'm the catalyst, Brad. I'm the decorator the last <laughs> I've done it all, man. Like over, over, uh, I've been in St. Croix mm-hmm. since 1980. Mm-hmm. So over that time, I've, I've developed this and I'm flabbergasted when I go back. And I see what I've been able to to create. Yeah, for it's really cool, man. I was able to go online and just see a few images. Um, you know, not not the entire property, but I know you started off with a with a smaller piece of land, and you've grown that into multiple acres now and rental properties. And I even saw one of the places on Airbnb. The view is amazing. Got an ocean view. I mean, it just looks like such an idyllic life. And th- though you started to do just just kind of walk us through what a day in 
in your life looks like in St. Croix. You wake up in the morning, you have what mango for breakfast, man. What, how does the day start? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have, I have mango trees. I have different cherry trees when they're in season, but I, I might have eggs and rice, sometimes poached eggs and toast. So my guys used to mm-hmm. show up around eight o'clock, the workers. So obviously I meet them and I'm, I have my game plan, what I'm trying to do, whether we're painting, pressure washing around the pool, pressure washing decks, uh, just working in the yard, transplanting trees. I have a backhoe thing and I carry things. I've got a pickup truck with a dumpster on it. So I've got buggies too, you know, the buggies that carry four guys around. So I'm like a gentleman <laughs> farmer when I'm in St. Croix. That's, you know, mm-hmm. then I break for lunch, you know, come in and eat lunch. Patricia usually has my lunch. So if she's not there, like I said, I have the foreman grill. I rarely eat out. You know, I rarely go out uh, when I'm there. I'm just around the house in the yard, just doing things. But I also enjoy getting back to New York, albeit St. Croix, the antithesis mm-hmm. of New York. But I like getting back, being Clyde, styling, profile, and getting out, seeing the people. I call this the <laughs> real world. Back in New York is like yeah. in the real world. St. Croix yeah. is like a fantasy. That's interesting. So, you know, New York keeps you on your toes. Like I told Patricia, I like driving mm-hmm. in New York, man. Mm-hmm. You have to be alert. You can't relax. You know, you can't be intimidated. It makes you think. You know, you got to move and groove. Go with the flow. And that's what I like about the contrast that I have going from St. Croix. No, Park it's very true, York. man. I mean, driving in New York, walking in New York, you got to, there's a certain pace to that, man. And, you know, you either got to pull all the way over or <laughs> jump into the flow. There's no, there's no in between on that. When you're in the city, uh, Walt, do you go by Clyde's? You ever stop by the restaurant? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I stopped by Clyde's meeting and greeting. Obviously, during the season, we're on the road mostly after Tuesday, like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we're on the road. And then Saturday, we're home. So I'm usually at Clyde's. I stop by after the game, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Uh, sure. You know Michael yeah. Weinstein. He's the guy, man. Michael, my partner who brought me in, he's a fantastic man. And I just thank him for giving me that opportunity. Oh, I, I never thought of owning a restaurant. I always <laughs> like to go to them, obviously. But, uh, you know, being in it was the right timing was me. When he approached me, it still took me like two or three weeks to get back to him because I had one foot firmly planted mm-hmm. in St. Croix. So this was a lifestyle change for me going into the restaurant. That mean I had a commitment now. I had to get out of bed a certain time, <laughs> had to go to the restaurant. But I loved it once I started meeting and greeting the people. And I've always liked that with the fans, even mm-hmm. when, as a player. I had a good relationship with the fans, especially the young kids who, who still look up and idolize me. So uh, it was a good way to give back and then have fun. Yeah, man. Doing and it. Michael is, is a mentor of mine. I, I love him, man. He's an amazing guy. You know, I saw a very touching video of yours recently. A young gentleman who has uh, cerebral palsy, a guy named Sebastian, did a little wardrobe challenge right. with you. And uh, he went and picked out a suit. He's, you know, a little young man and looks up to you and uh, of a different generation, but still just looked at you with such admiration and you actually had him come to the game and on the court and you you awarded him the victory that day of having picked a better outfit than yours. But that was just so touching, Walt. Yeah, it's so humbling as well to see such a young kid that idolized what I'm doing. But 
You know, I grew up under the oppression of segregation in the South, Atlanta, Georgia. And why I dress the way I do? Because when I went downtown, my mom used to say, wear your best clothes, your best manners. You're not only representing the Frasers, but you're representing mm. your race. So that was always instilled in me, not only from my parents, my teachers, my coaches. So wherever you go, you're representing mm -hmm. black people, man. So that's how I first got into the the dressing aspect of who I am, having pride in how I carry myself. And then once I got into broadcasting, I went, man, I got to improve my vocabulary because <laughs> I don't want to be saying, you know, and you know. So I worked diligently with that. I used to get the New York Times, mm -hmm. the Merchant Leisure section, where they critiqued the plays, mesmerizing <laughs> profile. Right. Wow. So I have books and books of words and phrases that I used to study, and I kind of related that from from mm -hmm. that to the basketball. Yeah. Tenacity, audacity, feline quickness. All the different things you see me, hear me saying. And once you learn words, you can easily rhyme them. Bouncing, bouncing <laughs> and astounding, you know. <laughs> yeah. Shaking baking. So I've had an impact. A lot of people write and say, oh, Cloud, you helped me with my SATs and all of this stuff. So, you know, I'm still cognizant of being that positive. Yeah, and you model. have been that, man. And it's really cool to hear where you get your vocabulary inspiration because I, I read the New York Times, too. And I'm constantly, you know, I have my, well, my phone now, but I would... I would have a dictionary in years gone past because inevitably every couple of sentences, I'm looking up some words, you know, and I'm like, oh, man, I never heard that word before. That's great. But there's all, all kind of ways you can find to improve your your vocabulary. So, Clyde, I want to engage your memory a little bit and take you back to the earliest days of you becoming a New York Knicks. So closing out your college career at Southern Illinois, you won the NIT and you were also the tournament's MVP. That game was, happened to be the last college game that took place at the old Madison Square Garden in New York City. A few months later, you're the, the Knicks made you their first pick in the draft. You were the fifth pick, I think, overall in the 1967 draft. Interesting side note, New York had embraced Broadway Joe Namath a couple of years before you. You both won college titles and would go on to win championships in your respective sports while being celebrated in New York media as cultural phenoms. I know you were a tremendous all-around athlete, but you chose basketball. Did playing professionally become a lifelong goal for you? Well, like I alluded to, my mom was the catalyst for my wanting to be an athlete, try to get her to this house with the big kitchen. So in high school, I played football, basketball, baseball. I was mm -hmm. a good quarterback. I mean, I was an excellent passer. Baseball was probably my least best sport. Basketball and football, I was I was uh, dynamic in those two sports. So I chose basketball because in those days, they had no black quarterbacks. So I didn't think I had the speed. You know, normally they would make you a wide receiver, defensive back or something if you were a quarterback. So I didn't feel I had the speed to make that transition. So when I went off to college in Southern Illinois, I decided to stick to basketball. The NIT was obviously what catapulted me into the national mm -hmm. spotlight. People at that time did not know who I was because we were considered a small college. And coming to New York gave me that exposure. And I, during the NIT, I was dreaming how it would be to play for the Knicks. I never saw such fanatical fans. and But I never thought it would happen because they had Dick Barnett. They had uh, our Comives. They had Bill Bradley, Kazan Russell. So I never thought they would draft me. And I was really shocked when 
it really happened. That's that funny, draft. man. So the 60s were, you know, obviously a pretty tumultuous decade, um, you know, and period in this country. You mentioned, you know, growing up in the South. Were you conscious of the social upheaval? And what was your mindset coming out of college and, and signing with the Knicks? I was oblivious to everything, Brad. I, w- I was not into helping the black man, helping my brother. You know, my whole mm-hmm. focus had been sports. That's all. When I read something, I was reading about Walt Frazier. I was looking to see where my day was. I can't believe how naive I was in college, even my first few years with the Knicks. I was never into social events or anything. But growing up in the South, I never went where they didn't want me to go. You know what I mean? You're supposed to go over there. That's what I did. I was never nonconformist, never incorrigible. And my parents were the same way. They taught me, son, do this, go there. So I, I never was a guy who was a leader in that respect. So now I come to New York and on the team, we have Bill Bradley, a white guy who's who's concerned about racial disparity. <laughs> you know, more than me, I'm like, this can't be. This guy, you know, would go to Harlem in a heartbeat and do anything. Then Dick Barnett and Willis Reed. So all of these guys really changed my philosophy about life and uh, equal opportunity for a brother, man. Yeah, Clyde, you can go anywhere you want, but the average mm-hmm. black guy can't. So you got to be concerned about that. So that was the revelation that I learned being in New York and around these guys who became interesting. I want to come back to those guys and what that locker room was like. But so take us back, Clyde, if you would, to your experiences in New York and nightlife, um, because you're this very visible sports star. Do you remember what places that you frequented, what the scene was like to you and hitting the city? It had to have been exciting. I think Maxwell's Plum was probably one of those spots back in the day, but discotheques were, were, were a thing. What's your memory of nightlife from, from back in those early days when you first were going out in the city? It was phenomenal, man. Being 22 years old, greatest city. So what I used to do a night for Clyde was after practice, Practice. We used to practice from 9 to 11. I would go home, stay home until like 7 or 8 o'clock. And I didn't really need a kitchen. The only thing I did in my kitchen was drink water. I ate out every night somewhere. So I start out on the east side, as you alluded to, at Maxwell Plums, uh, Fridays. So I'd, I'd hit all of those spots until maybe 12 o'clock. And then i head up to Harlem. Wilt Chamberlain, Small Paradise. And, you know, we'd be hanging in there, just walking around the, the whole scene in Harlem. And I'll never forget at Wilt's place, cars used to be triple parts out in front. When I came out, my my Cadillac was like in the middle of the street. <laughs> and uh, James Brown, I remember his car was there. He had so many phone numbers on, on the windshield. <laughs> So it was it was a wild scene, but, but Brad, when I first came to New York, I was from Atlanta, Georgia. Then I went to Southern Illinois. So I used to hear the guys in the locker room talking about what a grand time they had at Smalls Paradise. So I used to go out at eight o'clock up to Smalls. There's nobody there but me and the bartender. <laughs> you too early. So nine o'clock. There's nobody in the place, man. So I was used to going home like ten or eleven. Then I the next day I hear the guys saying, "Hey, man, we really parted at Smalls." I said, "What time?" You there? They go like <laughs> two o'clock. <laughs> two o'clock. I was back in bed. <laughs> That's like that old Richard Pryor. You know what time you going? Eleven thirty. Eleven thirty. Nothing happens till eleven thirty. Right. People don't come no. out till one o'clock. Man, they start coming out at one o'clock, but. When I first came to New York, right, Willis Reed took me out. He got me a date 
We went to Smalls Paradise. That's when they had the go-go girls. Girls used to dance in the cages. So we went back in the back, man. And I, and I, I was I was like in a movie. I was like at a tennis <laughs> match. My head was like this. Everybody, look, I never saw so many pretty women in my life. The whole party scene. Then they introduced Willis. They gave him a standing ovation. They introduced me. I got a few applause, you know. And, and I was thinking then, man, I wish I could be a star wow. in this town, man. Look at all of this happening and people all over Willis buying us drinks and I'll never forget we rode down Times Square he had a convertible I rode down Times Square and I, I was just mesmerized by, by what went on that night I never forgot it I'm recalling it now like yeah, no, it was just sounds amazing man <laughs> so you know, you, you thrive with the Knicks, like almost right away, all rookie team, as I mentioned. And then within a couple of years, you're playing for the championship. So with all of that excitement, Clyde, your, your off court persona, you know, taking on a life of its own, yet you still thrived on the court, man. You still excelled on the court. So you obviously were able to find a balance between the, your entertainment and social life and your professional life. What was that like for you? How did you balance your off the court world with your with your job? Great question. Great question, Brad. Parental guidance. You know, it's, they say it's a cliche, but I was born, I was raised by a village. Parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, my coaches, my peers. So coming to New York, I had a I had a solid foundation. You know, and I wasn't a, really a party guy until I got to New York. I liked to go out, but prior to that, I was more of a homebody. So now when I go out, I'm faced with drugs and alcohol. I never, I never drank in high school. I had beers in college. That was the first time I ever had beers in college. So now I'm trying to drink rum and coke, you know, scotch and water. And man, I used to have tremendous headaches in the morning before I went to practice, you know. So one day I woke up, I go, that's it. <laughs> Threw with alcohol, no more alcohol for me. So I found I could drink white wine and still have a good time and go out and but I always thought where I was faced with this scenario with drugs and stuff, what mm -hmm. would my parents think? You know, being the oldest of nine kids and always having that leadership role, they're telling me, Walt, you got to do this. You got to carry on the family name. So that kept me straight. You know, I mean, I was there at parties when all of that was going on, but I but I never participated in that. You know, I just wanted mm -hmm. to be an athlete. That was mm -hmm. my whole dream. And then in those days, an athlete's body mm -hmm. was his temple. You don't destroy your body with drugs and alcohol and doing that. So a lot of the guys didn't drink. Barnett, Dick mm -hmm. Barnett didn't drink. So Willis Reed was not a big. So a lot of these guys took care of their bodies. So that had an impact on, team, on me, too, but not as much as my parents and who I was and what I was trying to accomplish in coming right. to New York City. Thank you. I, I want to get into your um, your upbringing a little bit. But before I do, because you just kind of left it on a on an interesting note to me. And I've always wondered, Walt, if and, and I think I'm getting a little bit more of a clue into this answer. But given who you were, you know, as you came out of college and your upbringing, then you become Clyde. Did your on court and you were you were this cool basket, this cool player. You like always played at a certain tempo. I don't think I can ever remember seeing you even argue with a referee. You know, I mean, you just always had this expression. You seemed to play at an even pace, no matter how fast the game was going. You had your own speed all the time and you just had this cool persona. So I'm wondering if the cool on the court persona carried over into 
your off the court fly persona, which came first? I mean, did, did, did one lead to the other or was it just the wardrobe and all of a sudden, boom, you stepped off the court and you were Clyde? My on court uh, persona started in high school. I was a hothead in the eighth grade. I used to argue with the refs and all of that. So one game, my coach yelled at me, Frazier, come over here. You know, he said, what are you doing? Don't don't lose your head, son. Your brains are in it. <laughs> your brains are in it. <laughs> don't lose your head, son. Your brains are in it, he told me. So I never forgot that. And, and in football, basketball, baseball, mm-hmm. I was always the captain. So the coaches, were, I was an extension of the coach. So they would always say, all right, Walt, you got to do this. So that's why you saw that cool guy out on the court. I developed this persona where inside, obviously, I'm percolating. But on the outside, I'm looking cool because the guys are expecting me to lead them. So when they come in the huddle, I can't mm-hmm. be in disarray. You know, I got to be as a quarterback. I'm telling them, shut up, man. I'm calling the plays. You know, we're running this and that. Same thing in basketball. Baseball, I was a catcher. So I'm talking to the pitcher and the team. So I had these leadership roles, which was I was groomed for because I'm the oldest of nine kids. I was a, a role model before I knew what the word meant. I was taking my sisters to school, bringing them. I have seven sisters. <laughs> I was taking my sisters to school, bringing them back. We, you know, my mom saying, what? You have to do this. You have to do that. So I grew up with that mentality of being in charge. And and, and on the court, I that was the persona of Walt Frazier. I never showed emotion. You mentioned it with the refs. I played 12 years in the NBA. I never had a technical foul call against me. Wow. Never had a technical, never got an altercation on the court because that, that's what, that was the way I played the game. So uh, off the court, I started playing well and then I started mm-hmm. to dress. And that's when the, the media started focused on this guy. So one day, you know, as a rookie, I wasn't playing well. So to pacify myself, I always went shopping. So I would buy clothes and go back to the room and dress up. So I ain't playing well, but I still look good. (laughs) So one time we were in Baltimore and I'm looking in a hat store. I see this Marcelina hat, wide brimmed hat, brown velour. But in those days, like today, they were wearing mm-hmm. a narrow brim. So the first time I wore the hat, everybody laughed at me. My teammates, guys on the other team. But I go, hey, man, I'm, I'm going to wear this hat. So as fate would have it, two weeks later, the movie Bonnie and Clyde comes out. So now oh, I'm walking the in with the hat on. <laughs> hey, look at Clyde. So that's how the evolution uh-huh. of Clyde began. And I used to steal the ball on the court, too. You know, with the, with that and, uh, well, you know, like you, I had a few bunnies chasing me yeah. around as well. So. <laughs> no, just such discipline, man, to be – I did not know that, but it doesn't surprise me that you never had a tee called on you because I, I cannot – literally cannot remember ever seeing your expression change on the court. So I want to take a step back to your foundation because, you know, obviously your upbringing, you allude to it, had a lot to do with, um, you know, the man that, that you became, the athlete that you became and the person. Person on and off the court. One of nine kids grew up in Atlanta, Georgia during, you know, in the segregated South. I know I've read that you attended Martin Luther King's dad's church, Ebenezer Baptist Church. I've heard you speak about, well, about the the village of elders from your community and, and being raised by a village of elders. So can you, can you just speak foundationally a little bit about how that environment shaped you? Like I said, early on, I was not into giving back. You know, my whole thing was basketball and going out. 
you know, having a good time. But uh, I mentioned my role models, Willis Reed and Barnett and these guys, Bill Bradley, who was a revolution, a revelation in awakening me, enlightening me to, hey, man, you got to do more than that. You got to, you have an impact. People are looking up to you. So you can, you can change certain things. So Walt Frazier Youth Foundation was my way of giving back. The kids were always my most ardent supporters. I've done maybe eight books. They made me the first guy to endorse a sneaker. 1973, the Puma Clyde, which is still out there. I'm still with Puma with over 40 years. Recently, they gave me a lifetime contract with them. After 50 years, I'm still doing basketball camps. So I owe so much to the kids. So that's my way of giving back. Going into the schools, talking about education, the importance of, uh, you know, not doing drugs and alcohol. You can be whatever you want to be if you really apply yourself. I've had a lot of success in, in, in giving kids uh, summer jobs and uh, foundation things, going coming to the restaurant, working in the restaurant if they were interested in being a chef or different things. So I, I and I still do that with Walt Frazier. I, I don't have supporters. It's just what I do with my own money. <laughs> you know, like a lot of what I did at the restaurant, like people, we had a, did a lot of bar mitzvahs. So they would pay me 2000 to come. I have them make that check to Walt mm-hmm. Frazier Youth Foundation. So those are how I accumulated the money to go into the schools, talking to the kids. I might see a kid or some family that's struggling and I'll send them money. You know, like I'm Abyssinian Baptist Church, mm-hmm. Reverend Butts. So, yeah, I do a lot of stuff with the church as well and giving back and helping the kids there. Yeah, well, it's amazing, man, all of the, the stuff that you do without, you know, grabbing the headlines. But uh, you, you continue to do that kind of beautiful work. But, Brad, I find the more I give, mm-hmm. the more I get. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, my parents always told me, tell me, hey, man, give from your heart. So whatever I give, I'm not looking for anything in return. That's that's yeah. what I wanted to do. So, uh, you know, that's how I was raised and never look down on a man unless you're mm. helping him to get up. My father and grandfather. My grandfather thought he was a comedian, so don't kick a man when he's down. He might get up. <laughs> he might get up. <laughs> yeah, those those old sayings, man, you, you certainly remember. All right, so I want to go back to that uh, 1970 championship team. And, you know, I can still name almost every player on that roster, and I don't think I can name more than a few Knicks now. You had, obviously, a long career. Looking back on that on those teams, well, from 70 and 73. What made the chemistry of the players in that group just so unique? The character of the players. I never met Willis Reed's parents, but I'm sure they were like my parents. I never met Bill Bradley's parents. The same thing. But he had a mentality that I had. Team is first. When the team wins, everybody wins. Sacrificing, you don't see color. You know, judge a man by his character. Red Holtzman was the catalyst, mm-hmm. our coach, who demanded that we play as a team. You play defense, you don't pass the ball, you don't get in the game. So he had the respect of all the players because he never saw color. You work hard in practice, you get in the game. There's only one set of rules for Frazier, Reed, or the last guy on the team. So that was the team that we had. But if you tried to get another team like that together, it would be mm-hmm. almost impossible. And you could get those seven, eight, nine personalities that are in synchronized like that for the winning team 
the way we played the game. That's why we captivated the city. Yeah. Black and white guys striving just to win. We don't care who make the points as long as they get. And it was like a- everybody, if I remember correctly, averaged about 16 points. <laughs> like on four or five guys on the team had about the same scoring average. Right. And we still have that camaraderie today after wow. 50 years. Senator Bradley, I was recently on a Zoom call with Senator Bradley, uh, Dr. <laughs> Barnett now, Dr. Barnett, Earl the Pearl, Jerry Lucas, Phil Jackson. So you'd be surprised the guys are still doing well. The guys are hanging in there very healthy and happy. But uh, we definitely keep in touch. Willis Reed calls me almost every Christmas, wishes me a Merry Christmas. Never sent me a gift, but he wishes me a Merry Christmas. <laughs> and actually, I have to call the captain now because of the storm in uh, Louisiana. To see how he's making out. Willis is uh, mm-hmm. down in Monroe, mm-hmm. Louisiana. That's where he resides. So I'll be yeah. giving him a call. Well, one soon. of my one of my all time favorite players came off the bench, Cassie Russell. I just loved his spirit and his hustle, man. What, what was he like? Yeah. Cassie, Cassie, we call him. Cassie was the first guy that was into health and fitness. We called him Muscles Russell. He, he, he had the muscles. He would drink his tea, his brew his tea at halftime. You know, he would work out at the Y, you know, after practice. So he he was quite a character, man. You know, he had the big booming voice and the projection, very articulate guy. Uh, Well-renowned from college Mm -hmm. at Michigan Player of the Year. So I have a lot of respect for Kaz. I think Kaz is a, a is that right? now a preacher down in uh, Savannah, Fantastic, Georgia. Fantastic man! Thank you for that. I yeah, I just I really always admired Kaz. That that was my guy. So 1970 Game Seven against the Lakers has been one of the most covered events in sporting history, certainly in Nick history. But I did come across a quote of yours that I alluded to earlier that was a new one to me. So as Willis made his way um, in the, the now you know, infamous entry out into the court, garden fans erupt. Everybody's going crazy. There was all this uncertainty. Will he play? Will he not play? So he comes out and you said as you were warming up, Quote, I saw the whole Laker team staring at this man, meaning Willis. When I saw that, when they stopped warming up, something told me we might have these guys. End quote. So, of course, you went on to have one of the greatest games in NBA history and Nick history. But why did that particular moment resonate with you, seeing those guys staring at Willis? Well, it's like the Cowboys and the Indians. You know, when when they when the Cowboys shoot the Chiefs, the Indians have to go back and regroup and get someone else mm-hmm. to, lead, to lead them. So when, when Willis came out, three of the greatest players in NBA history, Jerry West, Elgin Baylor, Will Chamberlain, they stopped one up, turned around, had the ball back under their arm, staring at Willis. I said to myself, we got these guys. Just for, I don't know, that just gave me so much confidence when I saw that they were so concerned with them that they weren't even warming up. And then Willis would come out and make his first two shots. And I said, ain't nothing wrong with this guy. <laughs> but that set the tempo. The mm-hmm. die was cast and the crowd mm-hmm. became the catalyst. They were so vociferous, you know, rambunctious that they made us believe we could do anything. And they just got louder and louder as the game progressed. And I saw at times where Elgin Baylor, 
Mm. lost it. Where Jerry West lost it after the steal I made on him. You know, Chamberlain. So these three guys at times, they lost their motivation. It definitely affected the team. It really catapulted us to. Yeah, man. It was to me, it it just really kind of made it crystal clear to me in that moment how, you know, in looking back at that game, I rewatched the game and, you know, your your presence, the steals. I can see Jerry West getting frustrated, Baylor getting frustrated. I think you had like 25 at halftime. You know, you guys just never look back, man. It was it was just an incredible, awesome display. And of course, you know, Willis and, and the, you know, the Howard Cosell moment and, and summing up his, uh, you know, his will to get back out on the court and how that lifted the, the entire garden and then carried you guys. It was just uh, an incredible, an incredible moment to uh, to watch. And I didn't find out recently that Willis had been over there all day. You know, it's not like today where we had cell phones. So I was trying to call around, you know, usually on game day, Brad, my biggest decision is, what am I wearing? <laughs> you know, what am I wearing tonight to the game? But this day I wake up, I'm concerned, what is Willis? Is Willis mm-hmm. going to play? Because in game six, Chamberlain had like 37 points, 25 rebounds, <laughs> and, and, you know, propelling them to the victory. So now I'm trying to find out, calling around. I couldn't find out anything. So at that time I was living at the New Yorker Hotel, which is at the 34th and 8th. And the garden is at 33rd and 8th. So I was living at the hotel. So when I walk over to the game, I go to the locker room. Willis is in there. But I didn't know he had been there all day getting treatment. You know, and, and I'll never forget Bill Bradley say, Willis, half of Willis Reed is better than anybody else we could put on the court. So if you if you can come out, man, do it. But when we left the locker room, we had no idea if Willis would play or not. And uh, as you mentioned, it's a testament to this man's character. I mentioned mm-hmm. he's a man's man, tenacious guy. Uh, hey, man. So uh, Willis could barely walk and he came out yeah, and gave man. it for the team. And thank you for that. That was just uh, for us, for us New Yorkers, Nick fans, basketball fans all over, man. That that was just uh, that's etched in our memories permanently. So, you know, as, as a fellow New Yorker, I want to share with you my first time meeting you. Uh, it was 1979 and I had just gotten out of college at UMass and I was working with my dad at his restaurant, the cellar. In fact, your teammate, Nate Bowman, uh, lived directly across from us. We lived in that building, too, for a while, but he lived on 95th Street. And I happened to be dating someone who was a little bit older than me and a former Playboy Playmate, Julie Woodson. In fact, I had had her centerfold picture on my dorm room in prep school. And then I happened to meet her when I was in New York and we started dating. Anyway, Julie and I were hanging out. So she takes me to this very fancy shoe store somewhere downtown. And I'm still wearing like my UMass Letterman jacket, literally dressing like someone right out of college. No money, no style. We walk in. And there you are. She knew you. She introduced us. And although you and I are about the same height, man, I I felt like I shrank. I felt like I was about five feet tall because in that moment you were you were clean as a whistle. And every bit of Walt Clyde Frazier, you were just larger than life. And uh, it, it just it's etched in my memory. And, you know, it was towards the end of your career. So 79. And, you know, when the Knicks traded you all to Cleveland, I took it personally, as did a lot of Knicks fans. We were we were insulted. It turned me off on the team for a long time. You were so quintessentially a New Yorker and a Nick. It took me probably until the Patrick Ewing era to, you know, get over that that uh, that disappointment and that hurt. Of course, the Nick organization ultimately retired your number and you're the voice of the Knicks. So, you know, I would imagine it's all good. But that's 
time hadn't had been a profound one for you, the change, New York City to Cleveland, perhaps beginning to think about the next chapter in your life. Can you share some of what you were feeling uh, when all that was going down? I'll never forget. I was driving to my apartment and I see my agent standing in front of my building, which was unusual, an aberration for sure. So pull up and he had this excruciating look on his face. So he goes, uh, you've been traded. <laughs> My heart dropped. You know, I was devastated. Yeah, I was devastated. And I thought of retiring Cleveland of all places. You know, I equated that to being shipped mm-hmm. to Siberia. You know, after going from New York to Cleveland, I was like, oh, no. So it took me two or three weeks before I went there. You know, I was contemplating retiring. I didn't want to go. But once I looked at it on paper, it was a good place for me to go. They could use my skills. So I went to Cleveland. That's when I found myself. I reverted back to Walt Frazier, from Clyde to Walt Frazier. When there are eight inches of snow on the ground <laughs> and it's below zero, there's nowhere I wanted to go. And then, Brad, uh, you know, these guys were talking in preseason. They were talking about this the, the best bar and restaurant in Cleveland. You know, I think it was called The Forge. Man, we're going to The Forge. I went to The Forge and I went, oh, my goodness. <laughs> there was a place, if it was in New York, I would have never gone in. And this was the best place they were talking about. So I used to wear the mink coat and be all dressed up. People go, where are you going? <laughs> this is Cleveland. This <laughs> you know, Cleveland, right. I was, I was all dressed up, go. man. No place to go. So, so I became a homebody. I knew I was only going to play two more years. I started to focus on self-help books, reading books, uh, getting my lifestyle. So that's eventually how we talked about my ending up in St. Croix, because that's what I came to. I didn't go out at night. I stayed home. I was a homebody. You know, what? what, what is my life going to be like? I would say to you, Brad, 70% of guys that retire never make a smooth transition. 70% of them. You hear about the drugs, the alcohol, how many guys go broke, the divorces, it's a tremendous come down. And I was one of those guys, even though I knew I was tired of the game. And I knew how once you're gone, they're going to move to the next clot. It still took me maybe two years before I was comfortable in, hmm. in retirement. And and what is it, Clyde, that, that you miss? Is it the adulation? Is it the feeling that you're physically in peak and you're at the top of your game? Is it the What is it that is the hardest part to come down from? It's not what you miss. It's your ego. The hardest part is controlling your ego. People, your phone is no longer ringing off the hook. People are not lighting up for you. You know, people are not tearing the air, telling me every day this person has a crush on me. You know, this person wants to meet me. So that's the main thing you have to control mm-hmm. is your ego. So once you get your ego under control, you, you, you can deal with it. And that's what I had to work on. Not getting rid of Clyde and getting back to Walt. Walt Frazier, the nice guy, that guy. This is what you have to do now. Yeah. But it's a culmination of who you are, your background, because now you're down on the ground. You've got to get back up. The foundation that you brought into the game when you were young or whatever, it's a culmination of all of that. Like I say, parental guidance, the coaches, your teachers, everybody. Because when I'm in duress now, I hear somebody. If, if I'm dealing with being on your show, you know, I, I hear my grandfather say, are you prepared, man? You know, my grandfather used to be baffled how I could drive a car and not have a spare tire. 
You're like, man, how do you drive a car without a spare tire? Be prepared. You can't go out. What, what if you have a flat? What are you going to do? So, that you know, he's always, you got to be prepared. So coming on the show, are you prepared? Are you ready? My mom, I hear, are you confident? You can do it, son. You, you can do it. You know, so you hear all of these people that catapulted you here that made it possible for you to be there. So whenever I'm faced with any type of stress or duress, I hear them encouraging me. Yeah, those those valuable voices that continue to resonate, man. Uh, I still talk to my parents, even though even though they're no longer here. I, I talk to them and I and I ask them for continued guidance, man, and I'm in, in grateful uh, in every way. We've got just a few more minutes here and a few more things I wanted to get to. Moving into you know these these times that we're currently living in, we experienced an international outcry and show of support for the black community in the wake of George Floyd last year during the pandemic. And and while successfully navigating a challenging season, the league also appeared supportive of players who wanted to express their feelings. While reflecting on 2020, how do you think the players and the league responded? Magnificently. I'm very proud of them. A lot of these players don't know racism. They never had to ride the back of the bus. They they, they don't know that the NBA used to be 60-40 white, <laughs> not 80-20 black. <laughs> so they have no idea that. But like I say, they are interested in the average black person that cannot go where they want to go like them. So they're willing to make a change and they know they have power. They're using that platform. LeBron, of course, kudos to LeBron, one of the best in the game and, and all the things that he's done. But basketball historically has been light years ahead of the other sports. We've always had black coaches, you know, general managers, a few general managers. Uh, starting black five started in the 70s. The Celtics started five black players. The Knicks used to start five black players. So basketball has always been in the forefront of equal opportunity for, for black people. And, and uh, they continue to do so. And, and the players are very cognizant of that. And, and they're carrying yeah, on. Like I would agree 100%, man. Given the generational wealth, Walt, that most of the players today are accumulating combined with the ability to connect directly with their fans through social media. You know, you talked about role models earlier, but has the social responsibility to be role models become even greater given the wealth and given the access to their to their fan base directly? Yeah, and that's why, Brad, because of their wealth, because of their exposure, their popularity, people will expect more from them. When we played, we were like hockey. We didn't have that outlet. Basketball didn't have that outlet. We didn't have the following like they have today. So basketball is, the, you know, LeBron is the biggest guy athlete of all the athletes. You know, basketball maybe have five out of ten guys. The basketball players are the most popular. So they have an impact. They And Brad, I've I've been doing um, broadcasting 30 years. I travel with the players. One guy walks past me, he's worth $100 million. One guy walks past me, he's worth $90 million. He's worth $80 million. It never bothered me because I'm happy that I was still prospering mm-hmm. from the game. And, and and even with all the money they have, I know they, they really don't have nothing because they're trying mm-hmm. to find their way. They still have to make the transition when they retire to finding that happiness that I alluded to, that 70% of them will not make because it has nothing to do with money necessarily to be happy. Look at all the people with money and they're not happy. So it's finding the right mix in the way you carry yourself, the way you raise the people that you admire that can do this for you. So, but this year, 
was the first year the money got to me. In what way? <laughs> well, when I see guys making $250 million and, you know, a guy making $100 million, but if he passed this up, he can make 200 next year. It, it was just phenomenal, man. It's, you know, the wealth that these guys have, the wealth of the NBA, you know, it's just incredible that what's going on. But again, I don't begrudge the guys. It's just still mind boggling. You know, it's like we're playing Monopoly money, man. You see what these what these guys are doing in the game now that they're playing. Right. Pri- private jets are just a expected accessory. Oh yeah. <laughs> um. So speaking of the game itself, well, not the money or or any of the 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 benefits of, but the game itself from a from your perspective in fifty year association, are you pleased with the evolution of the game? No, I'm not. The game is not teaching character anymore. When, when I played the game, sports was about character. They didn't care about your jump shot if you weren't a good student, you weren't a good person. Today, people look the other way. They don't care about that. As long as you can run a touchdown and make a basket, they accept you. But it wasn't that way when we were coming up. And uh, it's changed the game. There was no one and done. You know, you had to get an education, man. You had to go to college for four years couldn't look to take the easy way out. The, the 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 game today is a blessing and a curse. It gives the guys a lot of a lot of money and and future, but it doesn't bring them necessarily happiness in how to deal with adversity when they're faced with. So, like when I came to the Knicks, people asked me, "How did you get number 10? I said, "I was in the locker room. The trainer go, "Hey, Frazier, threw me mm-hmm. jersey number mm-hmm. 10." Right. So Shaquille O'Neal never carried the basketballs. LeBron James never went through the the initiation Mm -hmm. of being a rookie where he had to carry the basketballs like me and Phil Jackson. We had to carry the moving projection, the basketball. And when we played in in L.A., Brad Willis Reed would come up to me and say, Clyde, you don't want your tickets, do you? I go, no, I don't want them, Willis. (laughs) They just take your tickets Mm -hmm. because you're Mm -hmm. a rookie, you know, in L.A. When you get to Cleveland, they give you your tickets. (laughs) But in L.A., Clyde, you don't want your tickets. Mm -hmm. Oh, man, it's okay. So these guys have never gone through that because they came in making a lot of money. So people are looking up to them. But why are you looking up to them? They don't know. They don't have a track record. They don't know anything. They haven't they haven't dealt with any adversity yet. They haven't won anything. You know, they have a lot of money. That's it. So this is what the league has come to now when guys come out making, you know, 50, 60 million dollars and never dribbled the ball, never made a basket. So it's been detrimental for some guys and helpful for other guys. But I, I think overall, the, the league, like the former players saying the league is soft. Players are not as tenacious as they used to be. They're definitely not as hungry because when we play, you initially playing for every year. You have to improve yourself to get a raise. So you're not signing for a five-year, $100 million, $200 million, where you can say, oh, I don't want to play tonight. I'm, I'm resting on my laurels. I remember when I signed a big contract with the Knicks, I wanted the Knicks to pay me for being an all-star. They say, you damn well better be an all-star, all the money we're giving you. <laughs> but now, guys, if they make the all-star team, like uh, I'm, I'm talking about uh, Russell Westbrook. You know, they, they can get $100,000, $50,000 more on top of the, all the other millions that they are making. So the teams really cater to the players today. The players run the league. The teams cater to the players. When they become free agents, you see how they cater to them to try to get them to sign with that particular team. Mm-hmm. They have to. They have to do that in order to be successful today with the player. And the same thing with the coaches. You, you can't really make people run laps anymore. You know, you can't do the stuff Red Holtzman did to us. You know, you, you got to pat them on the back, talk to them. 
You know, that's the way you can't curse them out like they did us. Say, hey, you want to race? Go to the Globetrotters. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, that's your only option. Go to the Trotters. You know, to your point, Walt, and, you know, granted, the league is doing a lot of things well, but I think what epitomizes what you just said and kind of sums it up is the the all-star game i mean that to me just looks like a complete waste of time and i know it's good for the league but the game itself i it couldn't be less enjoyable to me as a fan of the game well the game is entertainment now that's what it what it is it's all about entertainment you know the fans want to see 160 to 155 and you know that's what the what the league is giving them so well last two questions here you've played in and visited most arenas what is it about the match of Madison Square Garden that brings out some of the most iconic performances. I could take you to the garden right now and you will not be intimidated because there's nobody in there. But when 19,000 New Yorkers get in there, <laughs> yelling, screaming. <laughs> yeah, when that's when the garden is, the, there's no place like it. That's why it's the world's most famous arena. It's the people, it's the New Yorkers who make it so intimidating. You know, the, the way they, they react, like Willis Reed, when he made those first two shots, you can literally mm-hmm. feel the place shaking. You know, defense, defense, or like when the Yankees hit a home run, bringing a guy out to serenade him. That's that's New York. And like I said, these aren't fans. They're fanatics. These people are fanatics. They've been fanatics mm-hmm. since the 70s. You know, we used to seven out, sell out in the 70s when nobody else were, were drawing anywhere near 19,500 people. So it's, it's New York. It's about New York and, and the fans here that make it, make it that the energy. place that it is. All right. So lastly, well, I've heard you say that you believe in fate and you believe in destiny. As you look back on the incredible career playing in New York City, the persona and the way the city embraced and continues to embrace you balanced with the peace and the tranquility of St. Croix. Could you have drawn this any better than it is played out? No, it couldn't have been better. A better mm-hmm. script for me. And we mentioned faith and destiny. Um, draft day in college. I had worked out a deal with Seattle. I had worked out a three-year deal with Seattle because you said I was the fifth pick, right? So the Lakers picked and the Knicks, they, they didn't think would pick me because they had all the backcourt guys. So nobody thought the Knicks would draft me. So I go to class and I come back and, and my agent's got this bewildered look on his face. He goes, you've been drafted by the Knicks. The Knicks never called me. What happened when my sophomore year, I was ineligible because of poor grades. So I had another year of college eligibility. I could have gone back to school. So the Knicks draft me. They never even talked to me to find out if I would go back to school or anything. They just drafted me. So I was shocked when when, when they did that. But that's mm-hmm. destiny. That How did I know that? My life would have been completely different if I had gone to Seattle. I would have been renowned for what? Uh, what is the boots they wear out there? <laughs> You'd have been in the coffee business. <laughs> London, <laughs> London Fog. Yeah, London Fog. And, and, and the boots. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, just being drafted by New York coming to New York and that's why people wanted to be in New York because of the longevity, the exposure, the things that I'm still Mm -hmm. prospering from today by being in TV, doing basketball camps, still endorsing sneakers and uh, still living a very incredible... 
I was the only guy at the time with the restaurant currently in New York City. No other athlete here had in the restaurant other than Clyde. So, uh, you know, it's been a phenomenal run. And that's why it's very humbling for me. If you ever come to the garden, there's one autograph you're guaranteed to get. It's going to be mine. So I still intertwine with the fans, talk to the fans. You know, that's why I'm in the restaurant. I like uh trying to be a, continue to be a very positive role model for them. Well, Clyde, thank you so much for today and uh, for the way you played the game both on and off the court, man. I, I really admire you and, and just in, in deep gratitude that you joined me here today, man. It's great to see you. Thank you so much. All right. Same here, baby. So welcome, everyone, to uh, How We Move with Ambassador Shabazz following Walt Clyde Frazier. How about that, Ambassador? <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> oh, you know, inhale, exhale. What a what a like a bountiful. First of all, just nostalgically having him right here, right now, and and knowing what it means for us, those that know who he is and what he represents in so many ways, and hoping that a younger audience also really does their homework. You know, after listening to this and understanding all of the foundational things he said, right? You know, you think you know the game now because it has become what it has become. But when you think about like words that came to my mind regarding him as the village, you know, mm-hmm. humility, just character and sportsmanship, motivation. I mean, he said it over and over and over. And the things that makes a man, makes a player, the weaknesses, the pitfalls, and then realizing that you represent more than just yourself. You represent the team, you represent your family. And mm-hmm. hearing those echoes and those voices that keep you grounded, right? And never a bad thing to say, you know, behavior and all of those things mattered as well as, you know, being his optimum best. It was just delightful to see his face, hear his voice, um, know that he's just the mature version of the person you loved and respected, you know, decades ago, along with Fly and, mm. and, 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 and Charismatic. Yeah. I was really very excited. And also, let me say, I was happy that he's amongst those that has a life of balance. You know, um, one that yeah, I knew that I knew that balance would strike you because you're a, you're a balanced person. But talk talk to me a little bit about your impression. Well, you know, there. It's it's really it's really key. And somehow or another, he was mindful of it. But he said that it really started with from who he was at the beginning, mm-hmm. right? So we have to make sure our, you know, young brothers and sisters are introduced to what that foundational or fundamental balance is, that equilibrium that mattered. You had mentioned referencing um, faith and destiny and just his take on that. You know, if, it, if I had been anywhere else, I wouldn't have this that I am also the beneficiary of. And as being a beneficiary, he's a benefactor. He continues to make sure that he gives back and to balance that. You know, and I think about myself as a homebody, you know, uh, really much more reclusive, but I've lived on the road for over 40 years. And so the thing becomes, who am I? What am I? For me, from my perspective, the internal self, do we know who we are as we're navigating, as we're defined by our jobs and other kinds of things and expectations, fans in some cases like his, who are you after when the noise, when it gets quiet, you know? 
Who are you in the stillness? He referenced ego, but once he came to terms with that, could he be any more wealthy, you know, by having a real sense of that? And I know whenever I travel around the globe from, especially like from the 80s to now, and I'd be going a lot of places, I would take pieces of what I needed to have with me, almost like in, in an Egyptian coffin, you know, what's coming with me so that I can find and recognize myself in a different place and also choosing that place, you know, understanding what moves, What's the core? What's the language? What's the spirit? When I used to go to Spain, I became a flamenco dancer. Mm-hmm. You know, I I moved with their siesta and appreciated it as opposed to feeling still. Something about the, the downtime, whether I'm in Spain or Morocco, appreciating the three hours and in a way that you spend it with people where over a meal, they don't talk shop. They speak about you in the moment and and things like that. So it was really just for me thought-provoking because I am at a place, a crossroads, where I'm trying to define what does that nexus, that next nexus Hmm. look like for me in a way that allows me to thrive and still incorporate all of the things that feel like me, like, (laughs) you know, be fortified, but also I love sharing it. You know what what struck me too, relative to what you just said, the news when he was getting traded to Cleveland was not good news, you know, for anybody that loved him (laughs) or for him, especially. Yet it was the thing that provided him that self-reflection, you know, opportunity that allowed his transition from his game, you know, the game that he had loved and played in the adulation to yeah. his his life after the game. It provided that that the, the roadway, the map for that transition. And that's what sometimes being out of your comfort zone, right, can can provide. And, and I know you talk about that as you travel and you move people around around the globe. Did that did that resonate in the same way with you? Absolutely, because it happens anyway. We always get a little tap on the shoulder, pause, mm-hmm. pause, stop, stop think, think, wait, wait. And if it didn't happen when it did, when, what would have happened next? Mm-hmm. Right. But what seems to be really clear is that he's in tune to himself, you know, and he took, he heeded all of those kinds of things. So he didn't try to bring New York to Cleveland. There was another self that he listened to. And what do I do now with this chapter? Right. So now after you get old enough, you realize, well, New York, is always there. Cleveland's always there. Atlanta's always there. Now he's added St. Croix in that beautiful environment. It's still the same him. It's just where he transports that and is able to cultivate that. And when he talked about having all of the, you know, equipment and the soil and the turnover and, you know, living, what did he say, the gentleman farmer? I love it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it made me think of the same when I've been places in other countries working on a project. And people are surprised I'm out there too, like squatting, moving, dipping, moving, you know, moving the soil. And I said, well, of course I am. Why wouldn't I? Right. I want to be a part of that leaf, that bud, you know, Um, I just thought it was really interesting. And then just nowadays, when you think of the world of athleticism or sport and the mention of LeBron or others who last year 
took a different route in using that power that they had. It reminds me of 1974 when Jim Brown, um, Lou Alcindor, then uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Bill Bill Russell, all represented and backed and supported Muhammad Ali. It's like really using the platform to be the responsible influencer, if you would. And just recently, I learned that Nike had closed its offices for a week to give their employees a mental break. Imagine when numbers, revenue, NASDAQ, the Dow matters usually to entities such as that. But really taking into consideration that sports, sportsmanship, athleticism, endorsements, all of that will have a life in seven days. But in the meantime, let's find our equilibrium here. We need to have healthy people amongst us in order to generate whatever is next. Well, that's as good a place as any to uh, to take a pause. The equilibrium and the balance delivered by Ambassador Shabazz. Thank you so much. Indeed, my brother. And that was the I'm, I'm, I'm ready to shoot some who? <laughs> <laughs> slow, slow down. Slow your roll. <laughs> All right. Good to see you. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson. Produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson. Associate producer, Ariel Mancibo. Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast where you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a mean old lion media production.